Oh, there we go. We're on. All right. We are back with Regenerative Landscapes. Um, we are getting into the hot and heavy summer season, which is really busy for us landscapers and growers. So we're not taking a full hiatus, but we will be reducing our releases over the summer period. So just expect them to come out uh, once every couple weeks for the next foreseeable future, probably back in the fall, we'll resume our regular release. I just want, we, we already did a little bit of banter before we even started recording here. So we were finding out what everybody was up to, but I did just want to find out what everybody thought. Um, both Dan and Kevin and then myself, we helped kick off the grand opening of a new store in Spruce Grove called the Backyard Birds Nature Shop. And uh, other than the horrendous wind, <laughs> I was wondering what you guys thought. <laughs> it was great. Like, uh, I was very happy that you invited us out or just, yeah, let us know that it was happening. And it was, yeah, it was great. To, yeah, other than the uh, windy conditions. Um, no, it was awesome just being able to, yeah, have a table set up there and being able to talk with all the people that are coming and going through. Because a lot of them, I think, were interested in not just specifically, we're going to focus on birds and uh, everything associated with that and that's it uh, a lot of people were interested in okay let's look at you know kind of the you know plants and all kind of the work that we do with uh, trying to promote pollinators and uh, wildlife and you know in particular birds and kind of you know engaging us and how we can help them or just even giving them advice so yeah no that was really fun and it was very nice to uh, talk with uh, uh, with Alana yeah yeah she's very nice and actually her whole family because it seems to be a a family yeah Yeah, alana it seems to be a family-run business so the whole lot of them were were quite nice and easy going and um although it was unfortunate about uh the covid restrictions were at their peak then so they could only have five people in the store at a time um it actually worked in our favor because while everybody was lined up outside they were stuck with us (laughs) so it was great It gave us a chance to entertain them. Yeah. Yeah. We we actually played <laughs> yeah. some episodes of the podcast and showed some plants and talked to them about landscaping. And again, like Dan was saying, it was kind of a full gamut of not just the birds specifically, but um, nature in general. Like people were just like, oh, well, you know, how can I um, diversify my backyard? How can I bring the the bees in and the birds? And um, how can I get my rejuvenate my soil? Like, um, the general public's getting a lot more educated, I think, about the uh, the regenerative landscaping idea. And um, so it actually makes it a little easier for us because now people are starting to ask for things and, and know what they're looking for and a bit more of what they're talking about versus us throwing something out in the dark and hoping that we hit a target, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you think, Kevin? Oh, I was actually surprised to see that a great amount of group of people they are actually interested in those kind of like naturalized stuff they're interested in those uh seeing those native birds and also like they're actually interested in the native species and they ask questions about what we are doing so yeah so that was like kind of a very nice surprise and uh just like don said like more people they are like educated they they are wanting to know about the regenerative landscape so that's good that's like something we wanted to see when we started doing this podcast right so Mm -hmm. yeah yeah no it was great um and funny enough um i don't know if it's a combination of of doing that grand opening and thinking more about birds or the fact that all the birds have been coming in for the summer because they've migrated back for the season 
but I'm noticing a lot more birds now. <laughs> so um, I found it really cool. We saw like a goldfinch the other day, like they're holy, just bright, bright, bright yellow and some dark-eyed juncos and some yellow rump warblers and all three species of, of the main woodpeckers and of course the sapsuckers and everything. Like there's just tons of birds out there right now. And it when you stop and listen outside your door, even in town right now, you hear a lot of bird noise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, had you guys been out and about on any, um, I guess, in any parks or nature walks or anything lately? Uh, I went down to uh, Twilliger uh, Park, just on the River Valley there, and that was kind of nice. What'd you see? Yeah, I've never been there before, so yeah, it was kind of cool to kind of explore. Oh, I mean, I mean, it's mostly it's a lot of dogs. So it's a dog oh, park, dogs. Right? I saw yeah, dogs. <laughs> well, is it? It's not so, yeah, off leash though, is it? Dog. It is off leash. Like, is there? Is it an off leash? It is off leash. Oh, okay, yeah. So there'd be tons of dogs. Oh man. So um, actually, it's funny. I saw a a much larger dog type creature. Actually, a couple of them. So I was doing deliveries. I went down to Camrose and uh, out there, there's a, a lot of farmland and a lot of open natural areas still. Um, and uh, just around the corner from, from where I was delivering, there was a pair of moose that came out through some farmer's field and just started trucking it across and into the trees on the other side. And I'm thinking, although they looked really tall and really big, they were probably just last year's calves because they were definitely not full grown by any means. But uh, it's amazing to watch them, how they, they'll go across like just regular farmer's fencing, right? Like they, they don't have to step up or anything. They just yeah. kind of go across because <laughs> they've got such long legs. But anyway, that was kind of cool. So, and then, uh, yeah, we're hoping to go out to um, Elk Island uh, soon and check that out. But uh, yeah, other than that, we did, uh, we went up to our, our friend's lake lot in Lac St. Anne, was it two weeks ago, I guess? Wow, time flies. But um, just to see all the plants and everything all all in bloom and everything going like crazy there and how the how the waters changed so quickly because everything was frozen just a few months ago and now um even around the edges it's it's actually getting warm enough that I could put my hand in there <laughs> instead of freezing to death. Yeah. <laughs> so like it won't be long before it's warmed up enough we can actually go swimming in it. It's amazing. So anyway, um I think we will start with our green scene with Dan and he can kick it off with something he's found out. Welcome to the green scene. Yeah, so I found an article from what is it, May 31st of this year uh, out of the University of Brenman and with the Center for Marine Environmental Sciences. They were looking at, uh, scientists were, and researchers were looking at how vegetation was even possible within um, the Sahara Desert, uh, because, you know, today we know that, you know, the Sahara is, well, a desert, <laughs> not much uh, green vegetation there, or it's very hard to find if you can find any. Uh, but they were speculating that, you know, about uh, 15,000 years ago to 5,000 years ago uh, in the Sahara area, that there was a lot more 
vegetation pockets or kind of like, you know, swaths of vegetation in the area. And the way they found this out was um, part of it was based off of looking at illustrations and on like, you know, cave paintings and stuff showing how, you know, there's giraffes and crocodiles in these areas and um, just kind of these like caves and pockets of uh, water and stuff like that. I didn't know uh, they so that had was kind of like one aspect to it, and then another one. That... <laughs> so there you go. I learned something new already. Well, I, yeah, yeah, and what they were kind of getting to the more sciencey part of it was they. I think they took well, they took cores out of one of the lakes in the area. Uh, well, I mean, kind of closer to Morocco, and was able to find like fossil, like fossil plant fossil fragments, I guess, and being oh. able to test those and looking at. Um, kind of leaf wax residue that was still around, which is crazy to think that it would last that long, uh, being able to test for that stuff. But that's how they were able to kind of uh, indicate that, well, they could see based off the leaf waxes that there was increased rainfall during kind of certain time periods within that 15,000 to 5,000 year range. And I think they actually have a name for it. What's it called? Uh, The African humid period. I think there's another name for that, but wow. that's one thing that they uh, describe it as. But yeah, they were able to figure out that there was potential for increased rainfall during a certain time period based off leaf waxes. That is crazy. And then also knowing that, yeah, and then also figuring out that, yeah, with the leaf waxes, they could figure out there was increased rainfall during that period. And then looking at the pollen, uh, they were able to figure out that the vegetation there wasn't really. Um, tropical or subtropical but it was actually mediterranean so with it being mediterranean a lot of the plant vegetation is able to kind of um, handle more arid conditions Mm -hmm. so they're able to kind of figure out that okay there is enough vegetation because the uh, weather uh, was optimal for being able to grow stuff way back when um, that kind of vegetation was able to grow well wow like i mean i know in desert conditions because it's dry um things get preserved a lot better, but I never would have thought like plant wax, like wax off of the plant leaves uh, would be one of those things. Pollen I could see, but yeah, I had no idea about that. But, and then also the methods that they have now to figure out these details from those things, right? Like that's crazy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was kind of interesting to think like, yeah, like I was, I always kind of thought that there could be pockets of, you know, little vegetation, almost like just, you know, kind of these, yeah, like little islands in the middle of the Well, there's, there's know, a oasis ocean. in certain places, right? But um, yeah, exactly. But yeah, they, guess, they were saying that almost like, yeah, if you expanded those oases to <laughs> much larger uh, tracts of land that, um, yeah, it was a lot more uh, thriving, almost kind of closer to how um, kind of, you know, the middle of Africa in terms of the vegetation is kind of is now. Yeah, well, I could. It, it, I, I mean, I, it wasn't quite forest-like, but yeah, I mean, I could see it being yeah. maybe something more like the Midwestern United States, where it's more scrubby, but there's definitely a lot more vegetation than an all-out desert. Yeah, to find out that um, it was less arid, and then it's evolved to the point that it has. But what are they looking at to see if it's possible to return it to a more humid state again, or or what? Are, or are they just we're looking at history well, period or what? yeah they kind of get yeah they kind of get into um kind of the climate conditions and how uh just the way the monsoons in the area kind of developed um 
Yeah, what did they say? Yeah, we have winter rain on the northern margin of the Sahara, the monsoon on the southern margin, and in between the two areas, an overlap of the two rain systems, which provide rains uh, there during both summer and winter. Yeah, so based off their models, they're kind of saying how about every 25,000 years, they kind of get this change of um, kind of these monsoons and how uh, kind of how that factor in. So yeah, so about, you know, 15,000 years ago, let's say at the kind of tip there. Oh, what's that, a thousand um, years here or there, you know? They kind of had more months. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, they had these kind of monsoons that were, uh, had more heavy rainfall both summer and winter um, seasons there. And that led to being able to develop kind of these, you know, areas of, you know, green vegetation. But then now we're kind of in that period of where those monsoon uh, systems aren't coming in as often, if at all. And it's probably not going to happen for a very long time. But yeah, not to say, you know, maybe another 10,000 years, 15,000 years, we might, again. it might go back to, yeah. yeah. But again, that, there's all these other factors now because there's so much industrialization and climate change and all these other things because it's getting hotter. Who's to say that um, it could ever even get back to that unless, you know, things start changing because that, you know, yeah, 15,000 years ago. Yeah, there wasn't much in the way of uh, cars and <laughs> greenhouse gases uh, on the scales that we have now. Yeah, but I guess that's probably part of the reason why the scientists are looking at all this information and from around the world is to try and figure out um, more precisely the, the causes, what the natural cycles are, what's been more human induced, and then figure out, all right, now uh, what steps can we take, if any, to slow this down or reverse this or is this just natural cyclical stuff and it will come back around its own if we don't mess things up sort of thing um it'll be interesting to see it's actually funny uh we've been watching um what is that show snowpiercer <laughs> i don't know if you've watched that but um it's i've seen the movie i haven't watched yeah the show anyway that, so this the show is based on this whole uh climatic event that uh, they tried to reverse and they actually went too far to stop the global warming and then the whole uh, world became uh, basically an ice cube. <laughs> and so the last of humanity is on this train that just mm -hmm. has to keep cycling around and around and around the earth to uh, stop from freezing. And um, they've got some scientists that keep sending um, uh, beacons and things out to, to check what the the weather is outside to see if there's going to be any change to see if uh, there's any hope of getting the world to start warming up again, right? Um, so that's kind of interesting. Hopefully we don't yeah. get to that extreme. <laughs> Hopefully we figure things out before then. <laughs> but and and actually a lot of it is even though it's yeah, somewhat <laughs> loosely based on science, I don't know if it would really happen that way. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, very cool. Hi, welcome to the Plant Adventure Guide. So with the Plant Adventure Guide, I thought, actually it was kind of a weird series of events. I was driving along because I've been doing a lot of driving lately. And I was listening to a podcast, which interestingly enough, was actually about hunting dogs. And the particular topic that came up, though, was that... Uh, some of the longer ons of certain species like the needle grass and the candle wild rye or whatever can get stuck in, in their animals' coats or in their noses or, or throat if they breathe them in. And uh, if they're not removed, 
they keep working their way in until they become infected and they become a kind of a, a minor hazard in most cases. And in some cases, if it's an eye or something, it can uh, be really disastrous. Um, but anyway, this this whole this whole thing got me thinking about Canada wild rye, which is one of our native species, and also um, between the vet and also an ecologist that they had on to kind of play both sides of it. Um, we can show you the benefits outweigh the the possibility of these hazards with your pets, with the wild rye, and a lot of these other species with longer awns. So you don't have to go panicking going, oh my God, I'm not letting my animal outside now. You just have to be a mm -hmm. little more aware, right? So it is yeah. a cool season grass. It's a pioneer species, um, which means they establish quickly, but they're usually not long lived. So that enables other species to move in after a certain length of time. Usually wild rye, it's good for about three years or so, and then starts deteriorating and other plants start to take over and it fades out. So that's one bonus of if you're worried about your pets, it's not like it's a long lived grass. So, um, but the bonuses would be that uh, any of the longer on species are generally meant to establish on bare soil so that the wind can't blow them away and everything. And the ons will actually enable the seed to burrow into the ground and get a hold so that they can actually establish. Um, I guess some of the uh the reclamation ecology uh people were saying that you can actually if you're seeding an area you could reduce that to one pound per square acre and that will still get the desired effect for establishing an area but it will reduce the amount of these ons that could potentially get into your pets or whatever so that's that's one way you can navigate that issue the other thing is it only sets seed for a certain portion of the season so once the seed heads start uh, maturing from then through till winter, that, that's the period of time. If it's a really thick stand or whatever, maybe avoid taking your pets into those areas. And other than that, it shouldn't really be a problem. And then check your pets when they come inside because, believe it or not, longer-haired animals are probably more at risk than the shorter-haired ones because the awns can get stuck in the animal's coat. And then it just keeps working and working and working every time they move. Uh, until finally it gets into the skin and you may not see it as readily as some shorter haired dog or creature. So um, now the other bonuses though are that they provide a lot of good nesting um, habitat for birds, food for birds and other wildlife, um, and also the insects that feed a lot of these other wild creatures, right? So it's a, a kind of a a pinnacle species, I guess, to accomplish a lot of different things. And uh, to be honest, all grasses pretty much have awns. It's just that some, some have shorter and some have longer. So it's not like there's really an on-free grass. It's just that some of them are really short. <laughs> so don't think that Canada wild rye is the worst grass ever because there's a lot of different ones that can do that. Even some of your grain crops like your barley and everything, the same thing, right? What are your experiences with Canada wild rye? Um, well, the place that <laughs> Clark Ecoscience, where we previously, me and Dom previously worked at, um, when it came to grass mixes, it seems like the go-to was <laughs> throw wild rye in there. So 
definitely for a lot of sites that we worked on, there was always wild ride some form or another. And I like it. Like it's, yeah, like you said, like it's, it, it's, it's a short lived in a sense, you know, three, roughly three years before. Yeah. It kind of dies back and other stuff moves in. But yeah, even for those three years, like it's a nice grass and yep. I enjoy it's quick, it. Like, it's quick growing and it has a really cool mm-hmm. seed head on it. So through the winter, like it'll stay through the winter until the little critters eat it. Um, so it actually is a cool uh, winter grass, I find, too, for displays and things like way back in our episode when we were talking about winter landscaping. Um, this would be one of the ones to use for that. And there's no reason why you can't plant some of this in if you've got a bare area that you're just trying to get something on and keep the weeds out of. Um, then your birds and your insects and everything else can come in. And then within a season, you can plant um, other things underneath or around the wild rye and then over time they can take over and the wild rye fades out so yeah so it's so it's kind of a win-win i think um and it's also the yeah the the florets are my favorite i think <laughs> oh yeah the way the the kind of the curled i don't know kind of like a tail i guess i mean they yeah like a yeah like it curves and yeah it's kind of flows in the wind yeah i like it and it's got that kind of cool bluish green color yeah, I mean, before before it ripens or whatever, it's that. Um, yeah, yeah, it's co- like a cool blue green. Um, so yeah, I think it's a pretty cool grass, and also it, as far as I know, it is the ancestor of our domesticated rye. So if you really wanted to, you could winnow the grain and grind it and make your own flour or whatever. It just produces um, lesser amounts than our domesticated versions and. Uh, possibly might be a little bit more difficult to remove all the the ons and the chaff and everything because the now I mean now they've got uh beardless barleys and possibly rye and that kind of thing so that they are easier for for harvesting and separating out the the chaff and everything. But but yeah, still in a uh, survival situation, you could eat this grain and it would be gluten free. <laughs> So there's there's a there's a bunch of reasons that a good grass to have around. So cool. All right. Well, on that note, what did you have any other tidbits, or is that it for today? Uh, I think that was it. Yeah, it was yeah. just kind of a we're kind of keeping it short and sweet for today, just because we're so busy, and because Dan's got some big plans in the works for you guys. So stay tuned for that. Um, I did just want to kind of oh, put don't a- hype it up too much. <laughs> no pressure pressure. crash and burn (laughs) no it'll be great um but i just wanted to mention that um i've now that the uh covid restrictions are starting to ease i have been okayed we can go ahead with some of the nature hikes plan with parkland county uh library system for this season so stay tuned look for those uh coming in july and august and I'm also hoping to do some joint workshops and Exciting. hikes. Yeah, I'm also hoping to do some joint workshops and hikes with um, some local herbalists, ecologists, biologists, uh, other experts in the field. And also, coincidentally, um, it was a happy accident. I ran into, I hope I get this right, I believe she was Metis, and she's married to a Metis Cree gentleman. And anyway, they have these indigenous themed experiences where like they have a, a whole tent of uh, 
different th tactile things like the beadwork and the leather and all this kind of stuff, some of the history. Um, but she's also wanting to collaborate with me about the plant parts. So we might be able to finally do some uh, in the indigenous history and uses of some of the wild plants. So that That's awesome. Yeah, that'd be really cool to be a part of for sure. And then um, do you guys got anything uh, exciting, interesting in the works or whatever, even if it's, even if it's not something finalized or whatever, just stuff going on? Um, nothing too exciting. I mean, yeah. Well, you just finished up that yard. People, That's you know, awesome. Ask. Yeah. And I think soon, I think we'll have that on some or whatever, <laughs> some sort of platform of ours. Uh, mm -hmm. Haven't decided. <laughs> Haven't figured out exactly how to present it, but uh, yeah, we just yeah finished kind of our first uh, yard project, so yeah, we're pretty happy about that. And uh, client was very happy with what we put in there, and really liked uh, the idea of yeah uh, getting some native plants in there, and how you know they're small now, but you know give it a season or two, and they'll start filling in and start looking really pretty for them. So yeah, well, in this one, really um, that, but... didn't they have, they had some existing non-natives and you were able to incorporate, kind of blend both, right? Yeah. So we had, in terms of non-natives, we had some kind of tall, narrow junipers, kind of as kind of a border background. And then we threw some uh, irises uh, in kind of a plant bed. And then we also put some uh, uh, sunflower Nice. Uh, I mean, we just seeded sunflowers yeah, in an area, but yeah. they, they're really keen on the sunflowers. So, yeah, we yeah. wanted to throw it in the irises, too. So, yeah, they but, but yeah, to throw those in. But then, yeah, we kind of surrounded both of those with uh, with native plants. Yeah, but this will show know, and sage people and that, that it, you don't have to be totally hardcore and do nothing but native or shame, shame on you. This is a way to gradually blend kind of the, the best of both worlds um, and not necessarily waste or throw out plants that you already, I mean, if you, if you already got some non-natives sitting there, you don't have to throw them out and kill them or, or whatever. You can still utilize them and have the natives in amongst them or that kind of thing. So there's, there's always a way to make things work. Um, but yeah, hopefully you guys will have some pictures posted on uh, fescue.ca or Facebook or uh, something. And our listeners can take a look and see some cool pictures as it, as it starts to mature and, and fill in, because right now it's fairly young and new, but from season to season, it's going to change a lot. And uh, in the next couple of years, it's, it's going to be amazing. And we hope that um, there's a lot more of those in the works and some commercial projects as well. And if anybody out there amongst our listeners needs some uh, landscaping advice or some assistance planting some things or they want to get some native plants to rejuvenate their uh their landscape uh you know give us a call and we will we are all glad to help you out in any way we can and uh, other than that i guess that is it for this short little episode and we will have one of our main episodes in the next couple of weeks because like i said we're going to be on a semi-hiatus and just uh, stretching it out to, I think, one episode every couple of weeks now uh, until fall winds things down for the outdoor work that we're doing. And then we'll be back at her for hopefully our weekly releases. So uh, as always, subscribe, like us, share us, 
anything you can think of and give uh, regenerative landscapes a listen. Yeah. Do it. <laughs>